Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Chris Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Gina. French President Emmanuel Macron has faced numerous foreign and domestic challenges since assuming office in 2017. Today, he is addressing the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, the invasion of Ukraine, and the concern over rising cost of living, among other issues. In this highly turbulent time in French politics, several candidates have challenged Macron both from the political left and the right. Ultimately, Macron emerged victorious in his re-election bid to a second five-year term. Dr. Celia Berlin and Agneska Bloch joins us on the podcast to discuss the 2022 French presidential election. Please note that we recorded this episode several days prior to the second round election on April 24th. Celia Berlin is a visiting fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe at Brookings Institution. Her areas of expertise include transatlantic relations, U.S. foreign policy towards Europe, and French politics and foreign policy. Agneska Bloch is a senior research assistant at a D.C.-based think tank where she works on European affairs. She was the 2020 Geostrategy and Diplomacy Fellow for the Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Hello, Celia and Agneska. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast of Foreign Affairs. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And let's just begin right away with the on the French elections first round on April 10th in this year. There were 12 candidates and because no candidate won over 50% of the vote, the second round as we know will be held between the top two candidates, which came out to Marine Le Pen and the incumbent president Emmanuel Macron on April 24th, which is this Sunday or Saturday depending on if you're in France or in America. And could you tell us a bit about the result of the first round of the election? Who are the main candidates and who are the political, what were the political parties? On April 10th, the two candidates who came in first, as you just said, Gina, were the incumbent, Emmanuel Macron, with 27.85% of the vote. In second place was Marine Le Pen with 23.15%. At first glance, this looks a lot, I think, like what we saw in 2017, with the two of them being the top two candidates who then faced off in the second round. That said, I think the big difference, and this this we can describe this maybe as, as the most surprising element, is that behind them was in third place with almost 22% Jean-Luc Mélenchon of the far left, uh, La France Insoumise, which is a little bit hard to translate. It's uh, France unbowed, maybe is, is the right way of putting it, or if Cydia wants to jump in, she can. Um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon had done quite well in 2017 to getting um, around 20% of the vote. But I think many were surprised to see him rise so quickly in the final days before the first round. And much of this was due to the fact that on the left, voters were engaging in what's called strategic voting, um, or in France, we call it le vote utile, um, using their useful vote. And what was happening was that um, on among the green voters who would have supported Yannick Jadot um, and among voters who would have supported um, previously the Socialist Party, um, whose candidate was Anne Hidalgo, voters decided that Jean-Luc Mélenchon, even though he stands for a really farther left um, vision than either of those two candidates, they decided that Mélenchon was the best placed to 
make it to the second round as a left candidate. So really, we saw en masse voters moving towards Mélenchon in the um, lead up to the first round. And it actually ended up being a little bit close. There was some speculation as votes were coming in and were being counted on the day of the election that he might even make it into second place. But he didn't. He, he was in third place. And this is actually now a big wild card as we're moving into the second round. We don't yet know, of course, how these voters are going to choose between Macron and Marine Le Pen. In 2017, there was high abstention among those voters, but 50% still did vote for Macron, 7% voted for Marine Le Pen. I think this year we're going to see lower numbers voting for Macron. Um, closer to 40% is, is what um, models and, and polls are saying right now. Among the other candidates, the sh- vote shares were quite small. Eric Zemmour, who was even further on the right um, to Marine Le Pen, received 7% because many of his supporters flocked to her in advance of the first round in the far right version of strategic voting. And then behind him trailed other candidates, many of whom I've already mentioned. Valérie Pécresse of the Republicans was at a little under 5%. Yannick Jadot of the Greens was also at a little under 5%. And then we had a smattering of others, including the communist candidate, a little over 2%, Fadon Roussel, and the socialist candidate who happens to be also the mayor of Paris, which is part of the reason, and we can get into this, that she didn't do so well, at under 2%. So really, the race was dominated by these top three candidates, Macron, Le Pen, and Mélenchon. Thank you so much. And maybe, Celia, you can answer this next question I kind of had based on last night's new events. So last night, there was the, the French presidential debate on various topics, starting from Le Pen's connections to Russia to green energy debates. Could you outline some of the key topics of the debates that were discussed and Perhaps how this debate matters to the upcoming election? So the debate was extremely long. It lasted close to three hours um, and it covered an enormous amount of ground uh, to the point that I think both the... um, um, the, the the public watching it at home and including the people in the room debating and the or the uh, the TV presenters everybody was sort of exhausted at the end of it um, and it covered uh, many grounds beyond the sort of uh, ex expertise of each candidate. So even though none of them are very famous for their climate action, they had to discuss uh, the very important theme of uh, ecology and climate action um, because there was a whole segment devoted to it. They uh, talked about the cost of living. They talked about international uh, matters. They talked about security and immigration. They, they, they did the whole thing. It was also the only opportunity to debate with Emmanuel Macron. Up until the first round, uh, President Macron had refused to participate in any debate with any of his opponents. So basically, no one really had been able up to now uh, to uh, face him and maybe criticize his record. What has happened, actually, is that Marine Le Pen was uh, very cautious. She did not go on the attack. She actually sort of lost some opportunities, probably, presented to her to attack Macron on his record. And rather, she um, took the opportunity to sort of present herself and her project 
to uh, the French uh, public. Um, she knows this is a highly watched uh, debate. Uh, more than 15 million French people tuned in, even though this is, uh, you know, a, a score that used to be much higher 20 years ago, and now less and less people are tuning in into this, um, this uh, presidential debate. But still, it's the moment where um, she can make her pitch. And her pitch basically is that she's not the same as 2017. She's now um, a, a very uh, mainstream candidate, normal candidate. Most of it is, uh, you know, is a, a, a superficial um, assessment of Marine Le Pen because she still has a very substantially far-right political platform. But she is she has been trying for the past year to detoxify her own image and to make herself appear um, normal and unthreatening to the public, something she might have accomplished uh, yesterday night in, in quite, uh, quite well. The, my last point is on uh, Macron, President Macron, uh, candidate Macron for to his re-election, um, really had only one goal yesterday, is to um, demonstrate that his opponent, Marine Le Pen, was not up to the task. And I think he did that by and large. So even though she uh, sort of uh, presented a respectable image, he dominated the debate. Um, he even uh, dominated the uh, sort of altercation they might have had during the debate. And uh, she... Uh, e even if there there is an anti-Macron uh, sentiment that is uh, quite high in France, it continues to put him on a path that that potentially uh, leads him to his re-election, as he's um, he has you know uh, really he has underlined uh, the fact that he's in he's in control of of any of these topics. And she does not always get her facts straight. She does not always have a good idea of where she wants to go. So even if she made a pretty good claim on some of her uh, specific topic of interest, um, I, I still believe that um, he, he might have uh, made this debate a good moment for his own re-election. So as we stand right now, um, President Macron is leading in the polls, um, not by, you know, as much as some um, some have suggested that he should be. But, you know, nevertheless, he is leading right now. So the debate really, like you said, you know, it's a widely watched event. So it really was a moment for, you know, perhaps Le Pen to really change the tide of the race, perhaps be polling above Macron. I'm wondering, you know, you've laid out what each of the candidates had to do and what kind of their performance was like. Was Le Pen's performance sufficient to change the tide of the race? Or do you envision that the debate just reinforced some of the, um, the tendencies that are going on in the debate and there would be not much of a shift post-debate? I think you're right. I think it really reinforced the trends that we had been seeing 
um, in how the candidates were presenting themselves and the ways in which they have acted and for Macron governed over the past five years. Um, in the debate last night, he focused on numbers and on data and on refuting um, Marine Le Pen's uh, erroneous claims, while she really, as Cydia was explaining, um, really embraced this kind of softer, um, more relatable version of herself, not being particularly abrasive or fighting back against Macron. They barely clashed, um, but really brandishing this, this detoxified version of herself that is um, more relatable and has you know, um, been successful for her over the past five years. And this is a long transformation that she's been undergoing. So I don't think that the debate really changed anything um, very dramatically. And, and Sidya said this before in terms of the polls going into Sunday. I think what might happen now that there is this 10 point or even more gap between the two of them is that we may see more abstention than we might have expected on Sunday. Um, many voters, when the race was tighter, I think might have felt more mobilized and motivated to vote um, for Macron, despite, as Celia noted, a pretty strong anti-Macron hostility in France that's developed um, in, in various factions of the electorate over the past five years, from the Gilets Jaunes, um, who began um, as a, a protest movement against a proposed fuel um, in tax increase to centrist and leftist voters who have felt um, abandoned and and in many ways attacked in some of the by some of um, Macron's more right wing uh, policies and initiatives over the past five years. Um, Macron has lost many of those voters, some of which he didn't even have um, in 2017. But I think going into Sunday. With this high, this larger gap between the two candidates, I think those groups especially will feel like there's less of a reason for them to show up to the polls, and so I think it might tighten again a little bit in in the coming days. Um, like you said, this isn't the first time Macron and Le Pen have ran against each other. You know, as we discussed in 2017, Macron and Le Pen both in the second round elections, and Macron beat Le Pen by um, um, double the number of votes. So can you can we if I'm um, tracking back uh, back a couple of years, can you briefly describe how the 2017 presidential election played out in France? And was there anything unique about that election cycle? Well, 2017 was extremely unique. Um, first, it was an open election. There was no incumbent because President François Hollande uh, was so unpopular at the end of his term that he declined to participate. And uh, François Hollande knew that Emmanuel Macron, who was his former um, uh, deputy chief of staff at the Élysée Palace, and he was also his former uh, minister of the economy, um, Emmanuel Macron was planning on running, that he would be a formidable opponent. And uh, given the, the the levels of unpopularity uh, that he was facing, uh, François Hollande ref decided not to participate. Then his party uh, chose a very left-wing uh, candidate, uh, Benoît Hamon, that ended up scoring very poorly uh, at around uh, 6%. So the, basically the whole left was sort of wide open, uh, left to the center left for Macron to, to grasp. And he ran a campaign of um, en même temps at the same time where he combined 
center-left and center-right proposals uh, in an idea that he would transcend the left-right divide and propose uh, something new and different. This sort of uh, proposal was directly linked to uh, the, the counter-proposal of the nationalist, at the time already embodied by Marine Le Pen, um, who were a protectionist, nationalist, as much as they are now. And uh, and at the time, uh, you know, it was on the wake of Brexit, of the Trump uh, election, were very much part of this new nationalist populist wave uh, that was sweeping uh, the West. And so Macron appeared as sort of a, a bulwark to this. But up until the last day, up until the first uh, round and the second round, it was a highly contested election, and um, and Macron made it to second round. But you know, um, he just uh, he had no party just a year before. He had no troops. He had no movement. So he really uh, did something uh, quite unusual, which is why I think partly um, he experienced a honeymoon that lasted about a year. Uh, uh, where he was able, you know, he was he was surprising, he was new, he was concentrating power at the Elysee Palace, which gave him the nickname of the Jupiterian president, Jupiter in the Elysee. Um, and then he was very internationally, he was very interesting, he was befriending Donald Trump, but also very active on, in, on European affairs. All of this helped him very much on the first year, but discontent, social discontent that has been going on in France for, for years now, uh, started brewing. And I think, you know, Macron really never experienced this type of aura after um, the Yellow Vest protests started. These were a populist and popular protests that just uh, spontaneously emerged out of anger on the, the cost of fuel and later on the cost of living. And this, uh, I think this crisis really set up for the rest of, of Macron's tenure that has been mainly based on crisis, the yellow vest crisis, and then the COVID crisis, and then up until now, the, the, the war in Ukraine. So he's very, very much associated now as a crisis president. And he's not... And, and for this, he has been um, well-liked and well-appreciated by the French public that I think he was able to take important decisions at crucial moments when faced with a crisis. But what he has not been is a transformational president, a reformer president. And that was the hope of 2017, but it's proven to be fairly disappointing uh, where he, he has troubles... Um, enunciating a vision, sticking to his vision, and he has not, you know, come up with a real uh, coherent uh, platform going forward. And, and still, you know, um, what, what was perceived as his pragmatism five years ago now comes off as, as cynicism. So it's not helping him. So really 2017 uh, was the, the 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 whole the beginning of sort of this major shift in in French politics and what we're experiencing in 2022 is just an entrenchment of these trends, but with uh, the you know the element of magic that uh, Macron brought in 2017 that is gone now. 
So we talked at length about the different sources of anti-Macron sentiments from the yellow vests to, you know, obviously the ongoing pandemic. I'm wondering about Le Pen. Now, since her loss, what has she been doing? And I we, we talked briefly about how, you know, the debate and this race really was an opportunity for Le Pen to demonstrate that she is prepared to be a national leader and to you know, assume the office of president. And so what has she been doing to appeal to a broader audience? And also, how has she maintained such a strong support system since losing her election in 2017? This has been a long-term project for Marine Le Pen, but she's really um, put it into high gear over the past five years when she, in 2017, got um, 34% of the vote compared to Macron's 66%. Um, this was, I think, in many ways, a wake-up call to be in the second round, but then to lose so overwhelmingly. And so she really started to um, accentuate and focus on this project of de-demonizing, detoxifying her image and becoming, at least in her public-facing persona, a softer, gentler, less abrasive um, version of the candidate and the party that she that she represents. So by detoxifying, um, this refers to purging the most rhetor- the, the most radical and extremist um, aspects of her rhetoric, which focused on anti-migrant, um, nativist, racist um, sentiment which many people, many French voters connect with her father, um, who was the founder of her party, previously called the National Front, now called the National Rally. Um, Much of that language now is not what we hear when we um, hear Marine Le Pen speak at rallies and in last night's debate, for example. It's not what she's trying to put forward because instead she is trying to focus on appealing to what she refers to as the real French, the authentic French. And of course, I mean, this is a classic populist move, but she's responding to what she sees as having been Macron's principal flaws and the places in which she really could have the upper hand. And so she's branding herself as relatable. She talks about being a single mother, a cat lady, and she focuses on the ways in which French people have been suffering um, under Macron. She focuses a lot on the damage um, and suffering caused by globalization and deindustrialization. That's what she talks about, not only in her program, but in her public appearances This, of course, is something that she has spoken about even more recently um, amid the war in Ukraine, which is um, hiking up gas prices in Europe, increasing inflation, um, and many French people are feeling those effects directly, and Marine Le Pen is the first to address those directly, rather than talk about geopolitics, for example, which is and always will be the terrain of the president, and also one that might come to um, hurt her if she were to focus on it. So in many ways, the focus is on young people in France, people under 30. And this is, of course, also a sign of who her electorate is compared to the other far right and and center right candidates. She really does better among younger, more working class um, voters, rural voters, people who've completed high school or even less And so she's really trying to speak to those people who feel left behind by Macron and by the traditionalist parties in France. Yeah. And another major candidate in the race, kind of going back to 
a few previous questions ago was Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who pulled around 21% of the votes in the first round of elections. And as you can see, that's not an insignificant number, as we have talked about. Does this mean that basically Macron has a greater advantage going to second stage as there has been talks that these votes may be going towards Macron? And does he have enough pull to pull these voters to his side? These uh, voters of uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon really coalesced uh, for a good chunk of them at the last minute in the run-up to the to the uh, first round of the election. I have to remind everybody this was mostly a calculation, a strategic voting calculation for people who in other circumstances might have voted for the Greens, might have voted for the Socialist Party or or, or other parties, but who were hoping that by flocking to Mélenchon, they could prevent Marine Le Pen uh, from getting to the second round. So, and, and the reason is that they were hoping that you would get a Macron versus Mélenchon second round debate uh, of, um, of potentially high quality, because Jean-Luc Mélenchon is an amazing orator. orator. Um, he's uh, uh, very thought through. He has a long career. And uh, there was some polling done, and actually quite a, a chunk of these people, in particular the last eight points that arrived in the last days of the campaign, had every intention to vote Mélenchon for the first round and potentially switch to Macron in the second round. So, And these, this um, calculus was uh, based out of sending, you know, preventing the far right from getting to the second round and sending a message to Macron that their topic of interest, which is uh, climate action, progressive policies, uh, the attachment to a diverse society, uh, all of these issues, and, and more uh, social justice, all of these issues that uh, Macron sometimes has quite often during the, the past five years has sort of uh, forgotten to talk about or simply uh, you know, refused to talk about, the, the, their vote was intended to put it back on the agenda. So these people are likely in the second round because they still hope, oppose the far right very highly to vote for uh, Emmanuel Macron. But you also have, you know, the basis, maybe 13% of very strong Mélenchon supporters that have been with him for a long time uh, or uh, that got convinced over the campaign that have a very high also um, anti-Macron sentiment uh, for they feel that Macron is uh, very disinterested in social justice. He has put in place policies that have been very harsh on the poor, uh, including down to, uh, for example, the way he's dealt with the Yellow Vest protest with high um, sort of police repression of the protests that have led to... Um, uh, including injuries of protesters. Uh, so a sort of, you know, social violence that was expressed during the, the Macron mandate and that they are now rebelling against it. However, these people are also highly, you know, against the far right. And they consider that it is in that the, the far right is some um, element to be uh, absolutely um, uh, uh, fought against. And so when they were polled, and they were polled by uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon themselves right after the, the first round, what do you want to do for the second round? Um, 
a third of them, uh, I mean, close to 40% said they would uh, vote blank. They would, they would go and vote, but in the vote, they would put no name or something like that, just to express their discontent. A third of them said they would vote for Macron. And then the rest, kind of 20% left, um, said they would uh, abstain entirely. So the, the, the riskier element for Emmanuel Macron is that uh, these people might not vote for him, but at least for him, they will not go and vote for Marine Le Pen because they still profoundly oppose the far right. Now that we have in-depth talked about kind of like how, where the voters will swing and the candidates, I really wanted to discuss the core issues that lie with these two candidates. So what are some of the domestic issues that lie at the forefront of the upcoming election? And how do these two candidates, Le Pen and Macron, say they will address these domestic issues? When it comes to Marine Le Pen, she is focused on what I was talking about before, which is purchasing power um, and the ways in which many people in France, especially working class people and people who don't, who aren't concentrated in cities, um, have been suffering on, over the past five years, um, but also in particular in the middle of, of the war um, in Ukraine. So in her program, um, we see Marine Le Pen speak about young people, supporting young people, um, getting income tax exemptions for people under 30, reducing value-added tax on many um, basic goods from 20% to 5.5%. And on that particular policy proposal, she's focusing on energy prices, um, but is also on, on basic goods. There's a set of 100 basic goods for which she actually wants to abolish value-added tax entirely. Um, but so we see from this uh, a, a focus on, you know, meeting French people where they are today, bread and butter economic issues. Um, aside from that, if, if we move out of France per se and, and look towards a little bit what she's talking about in terms of her vision for, for, the, for Europe and for the world, um, Marine Le Pen is no longer anymore calling for a Frexit or for leaving um, the Eurozone and no longer using the Euro currency. But she does push for a Frexit by another name, as a lot of analysts have said. She wants to replace the EU gradually with a new and looser alliance of free and sovereign nations because she thinks that France has lost its power by being um, in the European Union and having to work with partners, including Germany. She's quite hostile to Germany and no longer wants um, cooperation with Germany on industrial and military issues. She, at the core of her vision is this idea that France shouldn't be beholden to anyone else and France should be able to fully express its sovereignty. Um, here, and Sidia can talk more about this because she's the real France US expert, um, Marine Le Pen is very critical of the US, which she you know, refers to as a protectorate and as domineering and um, dominating. She especially has been um, critical of how hawkish and aggressive US policy towards China is and articulated that she doesn't want to follow the Biden administration in that approach. Um, she wants France to be able to choose its own Indo-Pacific and Asia-Pacific policy, and she refers to um, French populations in, in those regions. When it comes to Russia, 
there's another big difference between um, Macron and Marine Le Pen. Marine Le Pen has a history of being um, friendlier towards the Kremlin and towards Russia. She infamously took, her party took a loan from a Russian bank in, in 2014. There's a photo of her shaking Putin's hand that dates back to 2017 when she was running for president and trying to boost her international credentials by getting a photo with a, um, an authoritarian leader. Um, and, and there's just a history there, which is not new for France, um, and we, we see elsewhere on the political spectrum, um, but of, of this kind of warmth and pro-Russian proclivity. She did, however, condemn um, the war in Ukraine. She supported um, taking in Ukrainian refugees, but she drew the line at um, weapons deliveries to Ukraine. And so one thing that we would see under a Marine Le Pen presidency is um, a, a blocking of EU sanctions, for instance, on, on Russia and on further um, military support um, to Ukrainians. Well, thank you both for such a wide ranging discussion on various issues, no matter who gets elected, you know, be it Ukraine, be it the ongoing COVID pandemic, will be a very consequential election for years to come. So thank you so much once again for the uh, insightful discussion. Thank you, Chris and Gina. This was very great. Thank you for having us. Yes, really appreciate it and really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.